Hello and welcome to another episode of Book Faces Live, the show where we talk to the faces behind your books. I'm Nathan Van Koops. I'm your host, and this week I'm going to be doing another solo episode. This particular episode is going to be on uh, the topic of a, a particular craft book that I have read. Uh, this is How Not to Write a Novel, 200 Classic Mistakes and How to Avoid Them, a Misstep by Misstep Guide by Howard Middlemark and Sandra Newman. Um, so I, I enjoy doing these these breakdown episodes. I've been churning through craft books lately. And uh, this particular craft book that I'm going through today is actually one that I've owned for quite a while. I picked this up years ago at Haslam's Bookstore. I've had Ray on the show um, previously from Haslam's. Um, and it, it's an older book. It's from 2008, so it was prior to the indie revolution. Um, so it's a little bit, a little bit more, you know, written with traditional publishers in mind, traditional, uh, you know, someone, someone seeking a traditional deal, some of the jokes and such that they have in here, because it's actually quite a funny book. Um, they don't take themselves very seriously, which I really enjoy. And that's one of the reasons why, because some craft books can get a little dry. I'll be honest. I've read quite a lot. And, um, one of the things that I particularly enjoy about this this take on craft um, is that they don't take themselves super seriously, and there's a lot of humor in this book, so I highly recommend the book. Um, so what I'm going to be doing today is mostly just going through some of the, the highlights that I've t- done, some of my sticky notes and dog ears that I've done, because one of the things that um, I notice every once in a while, I'll pick this book up and reread it. I've read it several times, probably two or three times. And I just got it back from a friend. I loaned it to a friend who had it for a couple of years, and I finally got it back. Um, and I said, oh, I'm going to dive back into this again. And sure enough, there's things in there that are striking a chord with me now with the manuscript I'm working on now. It's different mistakes that I was than I was making when I first started. Um, and maybe I'm not making – everything's a scale. You know, whether there's a problem with your manuscript or not, like, is kind of determined on – what genre you're in and how you're writing there are certain things that may work for you and may not work for others so it's not a it's not black and white necessarily that all these things are always a mistake um but most of the time they are so i'm going to go through um and we're going to talk about how not to write a novel uh, by howard middlemark and sandra newman and and if you spot some of these things in your writing uh it's something that you can go back through and, and edit because that's what the revision process is for and if you don't spot your book in most of these things, you can feel good about yourself. One of the things I like about this, because they do it in such a humorous fashion, it's almost like having a stand-up comedian who just makes fun of everyone in the audience when they finally do pick on you. You don't feel so bad because they didn't pick on you for all the other stuff, but you're, you know, there's something, everyone makes mistakes. We all make our mistakes, but we can laugh at ourselves uh, for the times when we do uh, make these blunders and uh, not feel so bad because, you know, there's 200 mistakes in here. If you made five of them, that's 195 that you got right. So um, we'll jump into that. And through this episode, I'll, I'll be talking a little bit about um, some of the, the blunders that I spotted in here that I thought were significant, things that I've seen other authors do frequently, whether it's, um, like I said, some, some I've made myself, some I've, I've read quite a few um, new novelist books uh, people who are just getting into the industry and they kind of want me to you know, take a look at their stuff. I see a lot of that. But I've also seen some of these problems in traditionally published books from like big five publishers who put things out and it somehow gets through an editing process and still manages to have these problems in them. So no one is immune. <clears throat> they break the, the main mistakes people can make down into several sections, which is plot, character, style, uh, world building. Of course, the world, the world of the bad novel, they call it. And then um, special effects and novelty acts. And then they also have, have a bonus section in the back called How Not to Sell a Novel, which basically gives you all the things not to do in your query letters um, and how to actually, you know, make sure you never get your book published. So um, to start out with, they, they break down plot in the very beginning. And plot is an area where people make a lot of mistakes. Uh, they have a, a nice um, opening line that I underlined where it talks, it says, a great many plot problems that show up in unpublished manuscripts can be resolved with a single strategy. Know what the chase is and cut to it. Uh, I think we've all been, um, you know, 
culprits here where sometimes we start the story and then realize that it actually starts later when we actually need to cut the beginning. Um, the why this day concept is important for why, is, why am I starting now? Um, <clears throat> so one of the others, that's a mistake that I see often. It says, so when you're beginning, to, when you're starting out your, your novel, there's, um, there's a danger too, especially with, with new novelists, to start with too light of a plot where we don't give, the, give enough of a hook in the beginning, where there's just too much menial stuff going on. Um, and it slows down the pacing. If you don't hook your reader in the first you know, few pages, you're done. Like they're not, the, the look inside feature on Amazon is important for that. People actually will flip into that, start reading a little bit. If you don't have a hook set within those first you know, few paragraphs or first couple pages at least, um, you're not gonna get the reader. I know like Hunger Games, for example, you're hooked by, by the second page. Mark, Mark Watney character from The Martian had me laughing on page two of The Martian, bought the book, walked out with it. So that's, that's around the time you want to get people going. Um, <clears throat> there's one of the missteps they mention here is that one of the first stumbling blocks a novelist must overcome is the misapprehension that what is of interest to him will necessarily be of interest to anybody else. Uh, a novel is never an opportunity to vent. Uh, so this is, this is something that they get out of the way early on. Your opinion on things is not what other readers want to hear. And have, getting really fired up about something that is sort of a niche topic is not a great way to start a novel. Um, next issue they talk about is called The Waiting Room, in which the story is too long delayed. So this happens frequently where I see, especially with backstory, people love to just dump in a bunch of backstory, thinking that you need to be caught up to speed on this character that they're introducing you to. And sometimes they'll park them in a particular spot and then have them reminisce for like a whole chapter. Um, they use the example of someone boarding a train and then looking out the window and then all of a sudden they're, they're reflecting back on their past. And then, you know, 10 pages later, chapter's over, but nothing's actually changed. And this is, um, this is important to, to never do in your novel. It says, the writer has also created an entire frame scene in which nothing actually happens. Don't forget that from the reader's perspective, the main storyline is what's happening to the protagonist now. So whatever Reggie thinks about on the train, the main action is a man sitting and staring out of a window, feeling a little queasy page after page after page. And this, this is done, I see this all the time with new novelists, where they think that you know having this particular flashback scene or this particular even conversation about the past, or even just a conversation about the present, but if it goes on for too long without anybody actually doing anything in physical real space in their world, maybe they're just sitting on the park bench this entire time, we're bored. We're like fundamentally just sitting on that bench the whole time, um, and we need some, some additional action just to break it up. Uh, it's not to say that you can't have some backstory, but I definitely wouldn't use it in the beginning. Um, I would definitely get into the action first. All right. Uh, they, they say there's only one letter's difference between yarn and yawn, and it is often a long letter filled with childhood memories. And that's because a lot of people seem to think that we need to know all these little tidbits about their character's past and such right out of the gate. And it's a great way to slow down your novel and really bog things down. Um, all right. So moving on, I'm going to skip forward a little bit to... Um, how we deal with, with character problems initially, this is one that jumped out at me, is that a lot of times characters or writers seem to think that they want to solve their problems too quickly. Like they, they give their, their characters complications to the plot. Obviously, we have to have progressive complications as things move along. But one of the issues is sometimes people are, are scared to let those problems linger for too long. Uh, and they say, if a problem is worth creating, it's worth hanging on too long enough to make the reader care. Most are worth hanging on to until the end, when all loose ends are cunningly tied together in a rousing climax. I've seen this done frequently. Um, I was reading a, a fellow author's book um, quite recently, and that was one of the issues that they had, was that they would give the, the character a problem, but it wasn't a big enough problem to, per, to keep them, you know, stopped, stalled out for, for more than, you know, a few paragraphs sometimes, or, or by the end of the scene, they had moved on. Something that you, you don't want. You want to create actual... Um, you know, critical complications in relation to the story goal, the overall story goal. You have to, can, can, in, in, yeah, the, can they have small victories along the way? Absolutely. But it should be, they should be progressively harder and they should take longer to solve until the end. All right, um, here's a good point. It says, when the setup deflates the payoff, deja vu. 
When there is a plan, things cannot go according to it. If they do, the plan becomes a spoiler. The action becomes dull and predictable, and the reader's plan to finish your book is what gets derailed. So this is a good point where they bring up the fact that sometimes um, things going too right can be a problem for your character as well as things going wrong um, and being resolved too quickly. So sometimes people will will predict what's going to happen by having the character come up with some with a, a strategy, and then he actually just goes out and enacts that strategy, and then nothing derails it. And this is a great way to bore your readers because we don't want things to go as planned. We never do. Um, we want the unexpected. We want surprises. So why on earth would you let your character's plan actually work? Um, this is a great way for your villain to intercede and, and break things up and, and cause problems and prove that they are a worthy villain is if your, if your you know, character's plan just goes to total crap. <clears throat> um, they have this section here. It's called Why Your Job is Harder Than God's. Um, in a good novel, the writer strives for a balance of likelihood and contingency. The more unlikely an event, the more deeply rooted and widely integrated it should be into the chapters that came before it. So what this is, they're talking about here is what, an issue where sometimes people will throw in something into a story that could happen in real life. Um, but they're saying that, you know, in, in real life, I'll just read this section that they, they gave an example. It says, in real life, no matter how unlikely anything is, the deaths of William Shakespeare and Miguel de Cervantes on the same date in 1616, and one man being struck by lightning five times, if it really happens, we do not question that it would happen. Our credulity is not stretched to the breaking point, causing us to stop participating in the world and go look for another one that is more convincing. Thus, God can work with the most mind-bending coincidences, far-fetched plot devices, and perverse dramatic ironies, never giving a moment's thought to whether or not his audience will buy it. You do not have that luxury. So <clears throat> you really have to be careful if you use convenience in your plot or anything that's so far out of the ordinary from what people experience in their day-to-day -day that, yes, could something happen? Sure. Should it happen in your book? Um, probably not. If it's something really far-fetched, um, we would probably want to keep it off the page just because... We would rather find solutions to things that everyone can buy into and believe that this could happen in your in your story. Otherwise, it, it could be this sort of deus ex machina thing that happens. That It's, it's very convenient writing. <clears throat> all right. Um, all right. Zeno's manuscript, in which irrelevant detail, detail derails narrative momentum. This is something that also happens a lot in new writers' novels, is where they feel like they need to... Um, describe everything that they're doing, like going into the bathroom and then locking the door, closing the door, then locking the door, and then taking off their pants and taking off their socks and taking off their, you know, their shirt and their bra. Like you don't, we don't need to know all the minutia. It says any scene can be killed by description of every meaningless component of whatever action the character undertakes. Um, another issue here um, that commonly comes up is called on my way to the scene, which basically where someone describes getting places. Like if you put your character in the car to send them to somewhere and you describe the entire car ride on the way there, we could cut that. We just skip over that part and just show us when they showed up there at the character, the next character's door, knocking on the door. Like we assume they got there somehow. Like you can mention that in like one line. Okay, you know, after a short car ride, you know, whatever. You don't don't show it by all means. Um, the bedridden scene it says any scene in which a character is shown waking up in bed or getting into bed is deeply suspect. Unless there's someone new in bed with her. And this is a good point. A lot of times we show the minutia of like the ins and outs of, of going to bed. Um, it occurs too frequently in, in newer novels. Um, you know, just, just try to avoid too many scenes that involve the bed. All right. The benign tumor, where an apparently meaningful development isn't. This happens... Um, often again with newer writers where they give you options or they tell you things that are happening that don't actually have any relevance to the plot. They're sort of like a, a, a misdirect or a kind of like a, a red herring situation, but they don't actually, um, they don't really tie into the plot well enough to be, be like a good mystery red herring. So <clears throat> it says, if you, if you want to describe something you know, just for the sake of you, just because it's an interest of yours or 
Um, it's something that you did a lot of research on and maybe you just are trying to find a way to squeeze this into your book because you find it fascinating. Like that, there's no place for that in your book. That's, that's just not, um, it's just garbage. It's extra junk that ought to get edited out uh, in the revision process. It says, um, if, and also, if it doesn't serve a purpose in the larger plot, like say, for example, you have any scene at all, you go through your book and you're rereading it, if you realize that any particular scene could be taken out without any effect to your plot, it should come out. Like there's no reason for it to exist in there. And it says, uh, and before you object, know they are not worth saving, even if they have my most beautiful writing in them. Such passages are like baby pictures, endlessly fascinating to the parent, of passing interest to friends and relatives, and of no interest to anyone else at all. So, kill your darlings, as they say. If you, just because you write a beautiful piece of prose, um, and it ended up in this section, it, you know, if you can remove that, put it somewhere where it's useful, great. But otherwise, just, just cut it out. All right, misuse of dreams. It says, Mr. Sandman on second thought, bring me a gun. Um, dreams are really tricky. And this is something that I think also gets overused by a lot of new writers is dream scenes. Back in the day, it was really, you know, popular for people to, you know, show the meaning of things in dreams. And it got overused quite a lot. And I think it's pretty dull most of the time now in books. Um, every once in a while, you know, you can, I've used dreams in my books, but I try, I do try to limit them. Um, Sometimes you can maybe do some sort of flashback or flash forward in my case because we do a lot of time travel. But if it doesn't have a direct relevance to the plot, consider you know leaving it out. They say a good approach is to allow one dream per novel. Then, in the final revision, go back and get rid of that too. So, um, just an area of caution, for sure. Dreams can, can often be boring. Definitely don't start your book with a dream. I think there's hardly anything more annoying than having some, you know, breathless action scene that um, just turns out to be a dream. And it's just a total fake out for the reader. Um, we don't want to do that. All right, they talk a little bit about endings. We, we mentioned the deus ex machina situation um, where you don't want something, you know, out of the blue. You don't want some random rich person showing up and saving the day. You don't want a superhero randomly showing up and saving the day at the end if it's not set up first. Um, cause it leaves the reader just saying, are you kidding me? This is, this is ridiculous. How on earth are we supposed to buy into this? Um, make sure that your setups, you know, are, are there to pay off your ending. Uh, you don't want to just, just blindside the reader at the end. This is, this is basic, basic stuff. Um, <clears throat> and also surprise endings must take place in a world in which that surprise can occur. You know, they talk about how you can't switch genres on us all of a sudden and introduce magic at the end of a story that didn't have magic in the beginning. Ghosts or anything supernatural or magical or any anything unusual that wasn't set up earlier can't... If it's not in the first third of the book, it shouldn't be in the last third of the book. That's just a good rule to go by. Um, we have to at least know that this is a possible option. Um... All right, convenience, of course, is, is always um, a good thing to, you know, they talk about the underpants gnomes, which I know you guys have probably familiar with the idea from South Park where the underpants uh, had this, the gnomes had this uh, plan. Collect underpants was step one. Step two was a question mark. Step three was profit. There's a whole lot of missing middle there. And sometimes people just sort of skip to the end of things where suddenly things are resolved and we never, and they say, oh, through a lot of conversation, this somehow got worked out. We don't buy that. It's obviously terrible. Um, and I read a book by a pretty famous author recently who did that. They just sort of glossed over a lot of the problems. Okay, um, convenience. For those of you who have read, I'm sorry, have watched the most recent Star Wars, um, I'm going to give a, a mild spoiler for anyone who hasn't. So there's a, a major convenience problem that was in the writing of the most recent episode nine. Um, so if you haven't seen episode nine, you know, maybe skip forward a few seconds and skip this part because um, I have to give this brief, brief spoiler. One of the things they did when I was watching this movie and I, and I was enjoying it, I was having a good time. And all of a sudden there's a scene where Ray... 
uh, out of the blue, heals a worm. that They fall into this sand pit in the desert, etc., etc. And it's just, it's a clearly a setup. And, um, you know, there's this snake worm thing that's, that's, you know, being angry at them. And she realizes that it's hurt, it's injured. And she uh, suddenly summons the ability to heal this thing. And it's something that Jedi have never been able to do in the first eight movies. Like, Jedis don't heal people. That's not one of their powers that has been previously established. But they decided to bring it out in this in Episode Nine because they, they needed it, obviously. And as soon as I saw it, I, I thought, you know what? This is a setup for, for later on. Someone need needs to get Force healed in the, in the climax. And sure enough, you know, a little while later... We have a fight scene with with Kylo and and Ray, and then Kylo's injured in this case, uh, but Ray heals him. She uses her healing power again. We've established that Ray has this healing power, and she heals him, and he doesn't die. And I'm like, okay, that wasn't so bad. If that was what the setup was for, if, if the whole worm thing, we had to go through that just so we could get Kylo to not die in the scenario where he probably would, I'm okay with that because I was still having fun with the plot and enjoying it. But then, of course, they don't leave it alone. They didn't leave it there. They had to use this, this new tool that they've created again at the climax. But what they did here was they broke some more rules. They broke more of their own setup. And this is why, you know, I walked away from that movie a little bit unhappy because, you know, I was having fun up to that point and, and overlooking a lot of the other things that they were making you um, cringe at normally. Uh, but at the end, we've got another death scene, basically, where a character has to heal another character. But we have established very early on in, in the in the world that when Jedi die, the good Jedi, when they die, they disappear, like pretty much instantly. Obi-Wan Kenobi got, gets hit with a lightsaber and like disappears like mid-swing. Um, they had randomly just killed off Luke for no good reason in the previous, in The Last Jedi. He evaporated. You know, this is a this is a thing we've established. So when Ray gets taken out, um, well, first off, like she doesn't she doesn't evaporate, which was like okay, well, all right, fine, maybe she's not, maybe she's not an established enough Jedi where she learned how to do that. Okay, fine, whatever. But Kylo now has to use this healing power, the gimmick that they've come up with, to save her. After which he randomly just expires for no reason, like in. But then, then in order to for her not to be able to just turn around and save him right back, he has to immediately disappear. And this is a stupid, stupid act of convenience that the writers had this character. They didn't know what to do with it at the end. They have this redeemed character who was a bad guy, killed his dad. I mean, we've seen him kill Han Solo. Like, they don't have any way of, like, bringing him back to the rebel base and be like, rebel, he just shows up, he, which would have been way better. It would have been interesting for, to see all the rebels be like, well, here's Kylo Ren, who's now back to being Ben Solo. That would have been way more interesting to see how they're going to live and interact with this guy who previously, um, you know, killed everyone. He was the bad guy. That would have been way more interesting. But instead, the writers just sort of conveniently got rid of him but had to break their own rules to do it, which was what was so frustrating. Had they come up with a way of, like Kylo Ren had just fallen down a pit. If they had just left him down there and like he had died, that would have been much more believable than having him come back, have this end scene with Rey, and then just die for no reason. It was, it was terrible. Anyway, convenient, bad writing, stick to your setups. Don't be like that. Don't be like J.J. Abrams and, and ruin Star Wars. It's not ruined. It's better than it was, but it's... Um, not great. So that's why it has such poor ratings, probably. Um, sometimes, too, like they, they talk about how um, some plots can get overly complicated at the end. You don't want to have a plot that, that wraps up and at the end you have to sit there and explain it to your reader. If you have to go back and make sense of this muddled plot, or if you describe all the things that happened that the reader had no clue of picking up on along the way... Um, just go back and rewrite the book so that it actually explains things better along the way. Don't expect your, your readers to buy into something all of a sudden at the end. Um, another example of this is now with 20% more homily, where the author tells us what he just spent 300 pages telling us. Sometimes this is this is, can tie into theme, too. Like, oftentimes, um, people think that their readers haven't gotten it, haven't gotten what they were trying to convey in this story. And you need to trust your readers. Um, they're smarter, 
probably than, than you are most of the time. Like a lot of our readers are super smart. They get it. They read a lot of books. And you don't need to spell it out for them at the end what the theme of the story was. If you do, you're sort of just you know beating a dead horse at that point. Um, but it says, fortunately, this final chapter is almost always extraneous to the story. It can, can simply be lopped off. So feel free to just remove that if you've got some sort of boring explanation at the end of your story. All right, so those are the plot issues we talked about. We're going to talk a little bit um, about some character issues because Lord knows we can screw up some characters like nobody's business. Um, all right, so description is obviously a, a big issue. Um, so the, this mistake, the man of average height, where characters are described in generic terms. Um, we don't only just care about people's height, weight, hair color. This is a very amateur thing to do is to only describe people based on their superficial looks and not um, anything more substantial. Um, especially, this is especially the case when guys are writing female characters. We just don't want them to be, you know, uh, eye candy. Um, frequently we have this issue, it's called uh, what color am I? Where the character must be in front of a mirror to know what they look like. This is something that really unrealistic that happens a lot of in, in rookie novels is where the author will go take the character and then park them in front of a mirror so that they can describe what they look like or maybe shiny elevator doors or whatever. It doesn't really matter. It's, it's dumb. Um, the girl obviously knows what she's wearing. She put it on that morning. Um, and they make a good point. It says, unfortunately, this is so obviously a convention of bad fiction as it might as well read. Looking in the mirror, Joe saw a tall brown-haired man trapped in a poorly written novel. When the reader looks in the mirror, what she notices is not the color of her hair or the size of her breasts. She notices the hair out of place, the misbuttoned shirt, the smudged lipstick. People don't notice what they see every day. They see what's different. And the reader, on some level, some level will balk. Yeah, so if you park your character in front of a mirror for some reason, make sure that they're noticing the things that are out of the ordinary, not the things that are, that are the standard things about them that you want the reader to know. There are better ways to... Um, portray that same thing with pictures they can't you can't just cheat and use a photograph either um, same basic problem you have to find more creative ways to describe your characters all right another not creative way to do it is channeling the e-channel where celebrities are the yardstick sometimes people do this when he was young people said mark looked like george clooney i really dislike this one this particular mistake because it dates your book instantly and you're relying on uh, your readers to know the celebrity that you're thinking of, and then now they're going to have that person's head, you know, face in your in their head. And if you your character doesn't exactly look like them, you know, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. It says it's fine if your character looks like Julia Roberts, but when you tell us about her, describe Julia Roberts. Don't just invoke her and never ever mention Julia Roberts. Um, this happens a lot, you know. Again, amateur move. Don't care, you know, move, you know, compare your character to a celebrity and then just shrug off having to actually describe them. Um, it's lazy writing. <clears throat> All right. Um, the Joan Rivers pre-novel special where clothing is given too much prominence. Um, sometimes people will sit there and describe everything. He was wearing a charcoal gray blazer with a narrow lapels and a pale green shirt. His tie was olive with tan stripes and his pants were like, we're bored by the third thing pretty quickly. Um, it says, while description of a character's clothes can give you clues to his character, it does not in itself constitute character. Um, a single item, black jeans, a flimsy halter top, will usually do the work. The well-chosen detail is always more effective than the exhaustive inventory. I think that's solid advice. When in doubt, yeah, find the thing that's different, not the thing that's the same. Uh, just kind of like the mirror, mirror setup. Find something that the reader can hang on to and put in their mind and then um, leave it alone. We assume they have pants on. All right. Um, <clears throat> all right. Imposing modern day politics on your, your character, especially if they're in a uh, novel from the past or in some alternate history or fantasy world, is, is usually a bad idea. Sometimes character, uh, writers will do this where they decide that they have to make their character super PC and... Um, you know, sensitive to issues of of race or um, gender or whatever, and the world itself isn't that way. It, it comes off as wrong. Like it, um, yeah, it's hard to write characters who are 
you know, inherently biased or racist or things like that. We want to like the characters. So you have to be careful there too and to not make them overtly, you know, terrible as some of the notions of the past were. But you also have to set them in a realistic setting and understand that they're not going to just magically have um, a bunch of modern day thoughts on things that they would have no concept for, no, no context uh, for having learned. Um, so just be careful. If you make your Viking a, a vegan, it's it's going to be problematic. All right, <clears throat> moving on. All right, so again, we're talking about description. Um, they, just, they say love interest Barbie, wherein love is skin deep. Like, we also don't want our attraction level between characters to be based strictly on looks, just like we don't want to describe them just based on their looks. We have to act, actually have something um, to respond to as the reader. And they bring up a good point in that <clears throat> it says in a movie when Scarlett Johansson appears and the male lead instantly falls for her, we see why. In a novel, the, we see the same typeface we've been seeing all along. The most impassioned, eloquent description of Angelina Jolie naked will not have the impact of five seconds of poorly shot video. And while millions of years of evolution might have programmed us to respond to size, it's not font size. Worse, without such instinctive responses, we are all too likely to resent characters, even of the opposite sex, for being ideally gorgeous. This doesn't mean that your love interests shouldn't be good looking, only that they must also have a lovable quality. At the very least, they should have a quality. Remember, blonde, brunette, and redhead are not personality types. And this is a, a very particular issue we have as writers by having to convey images via text. Um, you know, you've got to be able to give them something that's a little bit more um, emotional, emotionally charged, then we can't create visual effects with our books. It's just not possible. So you're not going to have visual reactions. Good thing to, to um, remind, remind yourself of. All right, um, don't, popular, don't populate your uh, book with too many characters. Uh, they describe the faceless multitude. It says, like a small business, a novel can, can, cannot afford to carry dead weight, even if, even if it's a close family member. Don't add a lot of extra people to your scenes. You, you, it's a good idea to sort of keep your scenes limited in terms of number of characters that the reader has to keep up with. Largely for the same reasons. Like we don't have the, the ability to visually just, yeah, this is a crowd. Um, if you sit there and describe everyone that's in the scene, you're going to lose readers pretty quickly. All right. Um, I see quite a few people have been watching. I see Amanda's watching. Um, I see uh, Dave is watching. Hi, Dave. Um, Eric is watching. So, yeah, thanks for guys for tuning in and saying hello. If you guys have any questions or comments about these um, common missteps and mistakes, feel free to, to throw them out there. Um, I always love feedback about these particular episodes because obviously I'm not getting um, interviews. So I've been thinking about doing these maybe, you know, once every, once a month or something like that, you know, do three interviews and then one of these breakdowns. I hope, hope they're helpful. But if you um, have comments about this particular style of, of um, episode, feel free to email me, Nathan at NathanMancoops.com. You can always, uh, or leave comments if you're watching live, feel free to leave a comment and let me know. Um, all right, so another major blunder that people make is, of course, with their villains. Making believable bad guys is a um, you know tough thing to do sometimes. It's hard to get sometimes into a really evil person's head. But we don't want to make them evil just for the sake of being evil, obviously. We also don't want them to just give them one nice quality that um, just to try to make up for it. Like just because, you know, Hitler loves his mom you know, isn't going to make him a well-rounded character. Um, so, but we have to actually dig in and actually make our characters believable. This is the hard part. It says, the only way to avoid caricature is the hard way. Making the bad guys insane behavior and motivations believable. So yeah, like there's no shortcut to this one, um, unfortunately. Like you can't just create a cardboard cutout of a villain and then, um, you know, just give them a couple of good qualities and then expect us to believe it. We have to actually really buy into the character's motivations. So unfortunately for your villains, they're going to take a lot of work. I think a lot of times a good tip here is the villain is typically after something very similar to what your hero is after, but just in a different way. Usually they've made some sort of mental um, mistake in, in their motivation. Uh, maybe the reason for wanting it is different, but we have to buy into the reason. 
because it makes sense to them. <clears throat> so oftentimes if you're struggling with trying to figure out why your, your villain is doing what they're doing, try to take a look at what your hero is doing and then try finding a mirror image of it. Uh, oftentimes I find that works. All right, um, the Riddler, when the nefarious plot is more complex than string theory. This happens sometimes, again, sometimes we overcomplicate our plots, our, our villains, their schemes shouldn't be overly complicated. It says, um, if a reader can't understand your plot, he won't enjoy it. If he is faced with a dilemma of deciding whether he is stupid or your book is stupid, well, we know how, how we'll bet because we are not stupid. Um, yeah, if it's a choice between saying your book is dumb or you know admitting that they don't understand it, they're just going to say your book is dumb and they're going to say so in the reviews. So don't overcomplicate your plots to the point where you have to explain them. Um, and I'm, I've made this, you know, issue before. I, my time travel plots can get quite complex, uh, but I always try to make there, there's an easy, easy path through. There's one actually book, my fourth book, where I actually even wrote um, a little uh, note at the bottom where it said, if you want to actually unravel this knot of time travel, like there's an explanation of it in the back if someone really wants to, you know, dive into it. But I don't recommend that necessarily. I know that my particular readers really like twisty time travel puzzles to solve. Um, if your readers are not those readers, then I don't recommend it. Um, and I think a good tip for this is to try to explain your plot out loud to someone who doesn't uh, hasn't read your book yet. And if you can't explain it in a way that makes sense to a to a new reader, it's too complicated. And I've had this happen. I've got, you know, some friends who write pretty complicated things too. And sometimes they try to explain to me what's happening. And I'm so lost that it's like, mm, no, back it up, dial it back a little bit. Try to make this an easier um, plot to understand because, you know, we're never going to make the movie out of it if, if nobody can understand it. All right. Some other uh, major blunders. Of course, we can... Besides screwing up our characters, we can screw up our language, which is, um, this is of course of a, more of a style issue. A lot of us have our own particular styles uh, of writing, and there's ways that we can screw that up. So, um, the pufferfish, wherein the author flaunts his vocabulary. I've had an issue with this one time where I was reading a book, and it was so clear that the, re that the author had just taken a thesaurus and just like dumped it out and like used all the biggest, you know, most obscure words they could find. And we're just trying to show off. And I didn't finish the book because it was annoying. Because you don't want to have to stop and look stuff up every five minutes. I have a decent vocabulary, but this was stuff that was just obscure and annoying. Um, and it says, using words the reader does not know is a bad idea, but it is at least defensible. There are excuses. There are no excuses for using words that you yourself do not know. Um, Non-writers might wonder how this could happen, and frankly, from time to time, so do we, but it does with appalling frequency. If you've seen a word only once and have not taken the trouble to look it up, the chances of shooting yourself in the foot are high. Using a word almost correctly, using a word almost exactly like the right word, almost or, sorry, amounts to almost speaking English. You may think that the occasional slip-up won't matter, but the language you choose is the clothing in which your novel is draped. Saying incredulous when you mean incredible is the prose equivalent of walking into a meeting wearing your underwear on the outside. I agree. Uh, every once in a while, I'll be listening to a book. I you know, listen to most, most of my stuff in audio, and I'll hear an author use something wrong, and it sticks out like a sore thumb. And now for the rest of the book, you're, you're waiting for another one, and it distracts from the story. So definitely get your language right. Don't, um, don't try to use words that you aren't really familiar with. At least, you know, spend the time to get to know it. So it's a test. Do I know this word? Ask yourself. Do I know this word? If the answer is no, and you don't know it, don't use it. Um, and there's no, and again, there's no shortcut to this one. Like if you want to have, if you think that your vocabulary in your books is, is not broad enough, there's no shortcut to that. You just have to read more and actually legitimately learn more vocabulary. There's not really any way to cheat that and think that you're going to all of a sudden become a, a better writer than you are just by using bigger words. It's not it's not, it's not how it works. All right, using too many cliches can often be a problem. Um, oftentimes, you know, it, it's easy for us to use a cliche to get something across um, just because we're kind of too lazy to, to come up with our own particular turn of phrase. 
Because realistically, and they explain this in here, is that cliches become cliches for a reason. At some point in time, every cliche was a fresh or surprising turn of phrase, and it expressed something so well that it entered the language as a unit of meaning, in many cases operating like a single word. Often, one of these boilerplate phrases is perfectly acceptable. To say that someone is drop-dead gorgeous conveys an idea without distracting attention from the general thrust of the narrative. There is a critical point, however, at which the constant use of off-the-shelf phrases saps the life from your writing. Because they are so familiar, these phrases are drained of even the meaning of the individual words that make them up. We skip over the phrase, pretty as a picture, without picturing anything. At best, it means no, no more than the word pretty alone, and at worst, nothing at all. And I think that's a, a valid point to bring up, is that when you use a turn of phrase that is so common that it has become cliché, um, you're robbing yourself of a potential to describe something in a way that's actually meaningful and actually memorable. Because one of the things that we desire to do in our style, the reason why we try to develop an author voice and have a style in the first place is so that we can stand out from other writers. So that people can say, hey, I really enjoy this writer's unique voice. We're not going to develop a unique voice by using using cliche phrases. It's working in the opposite direction. You're just, you know, shooting yourself in the foot. To use a to use a generic phrase, um, but it, it fits in this case because that's that's exactly what you're doing in this scenario. So try to f- come up with your own phrases that are memorable, um, and then people will be like, "Oh, I really like that," and then they'll start using that phrase instead. And they'll be like, "Oh, where'd you learn that? Oh, I got this from so and so's book." All right, <clears throat> next major blunder. Uh, I mean this exclamation point exclamation point. Wherein the author punctuates hysterically. Okay, I didn't think this this was a major problem until the other day, well, not the other day, a couple months back, I read the book uh, Mortal Engines, and uh, Philip, I can't remember his last name, wrote this book. And this is a major, you know, traditionally published series now. It got made into a, a, a movie by Peter Jackson, and the, the high concept is really cool. It's basically this, this uh, story about cities, this post-apocalyptic world in which cities are all mobile, and they go around eating other cities on the frontier. Cool, high concept idea, loved it in, in terms of that. But there was a particular character who literally every sentence out of his mouth had an exclamation point at the end of it. And it drove me bonkers. I'm like, how on earth did this book get published by a major publisher with this many stinking exclamation points in it? Drove me nuts. Um, I guess the editor was just really nice and said, sure, we'll let this person, you know, come off as an as a, you know, idiot, even though they're the hero of the story. But, you know, I don't recommend it. Try to try to tone it down. I don't think you should use more than, you know, one exclamation point per paragraph or something. There shouldn't be, I don't use very many exclamation points. Unless, you know, someone's really shouting. I mean, you can usually tell from the dialogue that they're excited. If you can't tell from the dialogue, you know, you shouldn't need that much extra punctuation to make it work. All right. Um, another frequent style problem. The list of ingredients. We're in lists substitute for description. Um, sometimes an author understands in principle that the description is necessary, but does not grasp the difference between description and inventory. Um, this happens a lot with settings. People will go into a room and then just sit there and describe all the stuff in the room. Um, to annoying detail. Um, they says, the zoo contained cages with animals in them. People walked past the cages, looking at the animals and talking. There were also places to buy snacks. The snacks available included hot dogs, hamburgers, and potato chips. This is irrelevant information that our brains will auto-fill in for us. You do not need to tell us this. The nice thing about using scenes, settings, you know, that are familiar, like a zoo. We know what a zoo looks like. We've been to one. Um, we're not idiots. So the only trouble you have is if you're writing fantasy or you're science fiction or you're writing some sort of amazing world that no one has ever been to before, then yeah, you're going to need to do a little bit more description. But again, you're not, you're not going to add the boring parts. You're only going to describe the interesting stuff. <clears throat> Obviously, that would be... Um, we want Again, the small detail, the thing that's different is what we want to know about. Don't describe the stuff that's already normal that we assume. All right. Um... This is another one, the redundant tautology, where the author repeats himself. This happens a lot, and happens a lot in dialogue, where 
basically the, the author is repeating things that the character already knows or repeats things that the reader already knows, especially. Um, we run into this a lot of times where a character has a particular occurrence and then has runs into someone else who asks what happened. And then they go on to explain what happened to them in the last scene. It's super annoying for the reader because we were there. We watched the whole thing happen. We don't need to have another narrative that describes you know, what has already gone on with this character. I, I read a book recently where they just kept doing this over and over again. They kept having the same conversations and rehashing the same past incidents with every new character that they met. And it drove me insane because it's like, you just narrate over that. Like, oh, and he gave a brief description of what had happened. You, you find a way for them to say that they told the story. You don't have to tell us the story. We were there. Um, happens a lot in, in novice novels. So be careful that you don't repeat information that you've already done. And sometimes this is just a, you know, the book is long. It takes you a long time to write it. Sometimes you've already wrote something earlier on. You forgot that you already told the reader. Make sure that you go back and, and reread for that. Um, I hear stories about sometimes some of these new, new indie authors who are just, oh, I don't even go back and reread everything. I just reread a little bit and then I continue on and then I send it off to my editor. Like, unless your editor's really good, like, they better catch that. But you should catch it. You're the, you're the author. You know better. Don't don't rehash things you've already done. Um, all right, you had to be there. Wherein the author thinks you know what he means. Don't use inside jokes in your books. Um, it's a dumb idea because they're inside jokes. And like, if only a few people are going to get it, that means the majority of the people won't, and they're going to be annoyed. Or even if it's so obscure that it just wastes time. I have some Easter eggs in some one of my books. I put an Easter egg in like literally just for my editor. And not even she noticed. So um, I don't think it, it's necessarily, you know, a good idea. Don't waste your time putting in inside jokes because um, you're leaving people out. All right, dialogue. Of course we can screw up dialogue. It's a major place where we do all kinds of terrible things to our books. Um, of course, this is a, this is a major one that, that new writers do. Um, when the author thinks he's too good for the word said. Early on in my, when I, my first draft, my first novel, I sent it to a friend. And I, I did have this problem where I used the word said a lot because I had a lot of different characters in the same scene, which is, it was a problem that you shouldn't necessarily have. And everyone was speaking. So it was frequently, so-and-so said this, or this, blah, 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 so-and-so said. And it was a different so-and-so speaking the next lines because they were all having the conversation, five different people in this conversation. So... There'll be a lot of said. So, so this feedback was, oh, why don't you use more things, you know, more different dialogue tags um, to, you know, liven that up. Yeah, you know, the right idea in, in that, yeah, I needed to get rid of some of the saids by having it more, putting in more actions and do other solutions. But I didn't, you shouldn't have to put in other stuff. They give an example here. <clears throat> uh, it was a sea creature, he affirmed but one which had subtly mutated to be far more dangerous, far more deadly than its marine counterpart. For on dry land, he uttered, it had become both larger and more muscular. It's funny, he smirked, now that I look back from safety. Funny, she interrogated. Hilarious, he expostulated. Surely not, she doubted. But how little you know, he exclaimed. Says you, she objected. Obviously this is tedious, this is horrible, because we don't, we're noticing every one of these verbs, um, that we shouldn't be noticing at all. And the beautiful thing about the word said is that we just blur over it, like in our minds. It's so boring of a word that we don't notice it in the in the in the in the text. That's that's what it's for. Um, so yeah. Said is a convention so firmly established that readers for the most part do not even see it. This helps makes the dialogue realistic by keeping its superstructure invisible. Um, it says, a particular egregious version of this occurs when an author conflates a stage direction with a, desired, with a desire to avoid the word said instead of writing. You and what army, he said, thrusting out his jaw, or he asked, quirking a brow, produces something like, hello, he thrusted, or are you going to finish that, he quirked. Like, you can't abbreviate the entire action down to just the verb and expect that to work. It says, the only thing any of this does, though, is draw attention to the unconventional verb, which reminds the reader that there is an author who is struggling mightily to avoid the word set. And I couldn't agree more on this one. Um, I've, you know, I said I was given that bad advice previously. It's it's bad advice. Don't try to replace said with a bunch of other random things. 
Asked is okay. Yeah, if there's a question, sure. You know, you can say asked. I mean, asked, said, those are pretty invisible. There's a few other ones, maybe replied. You might be able to get away with some of those. Um, but trying to get fancier than that really just, again, uh, points out the fact that you're the, you're the author and you're trying to get creative. It doesn't really help the story to, it doesn't help the reader to stay invested in the story. All right, um, said the man who had just returned from three months on an Arctic expedition. You don't want to explain too much, have too much explanation in your dialogue tags as well. Um, or just describing people too much. Adverbs, of course, is a, is a, is a big one. Stephen King's on writing. He talks about his hatred of, of adverbs. And yeah, can they be um, possibly useful? Sure. But... You should be able to tell from, from the from the dialogue. He says, I don't know what you're talking about, he said, baffled. You don't see the connection? That's amazing, said Harriet, incredulously. Like, these are stupid extra adverbs that um, the point has already been made by the dialogue, so they're useless. Like, tragic? Is that all you have to say? She said, angry at his lack of further things to say. Like, that's, don't be redundant with your dialogue tags. This is something that a lot of, again, rookie writers do it. Makes you look like a rookie writer. Just don't put a bunch of adverbs. It says, um, adverbs don't kill dialogue. Careless writers kill dialogue. So yeah, is there a, a appropriate use for them sometimes? Sure. Should you probably cut most of them out? Yes. Especially if they're redundant. But if you can't get across what your character's trying to say in the dialogue, then you probably just need to rewrite your dialogue. All right, um, some other major theme or style um, convention problems where the failure, author fails to identify your speakers. Obviously, you need to have enough dialogue tags so that the reader doesn't get completely confused on who's talking. Um, the court reporter, in which every single last solitary word of conversation is included. Dialogue shouldn't sound like real life. We shouldn't have to hear, hi, Jane, nice to see you. How, have you been waiting long? No, don't worry. Only about five. We don't need to know everything. Just skip to the good stuff. Um, and a lot of this that'll kill your pacing and your in your your writing really quickly is if you try to make your dialogue actually sound right like real life. All right. Um, hello, I am the mommy. Where characters announce things that they wouldn't. This happens uh, frequently again with novice writers where people try to force things into dialogue that wouldn't be spoken in a real conversation. Um, here's the example. I love my work. Some people call me a workaholic. Well, maybe I am, said Annette, gathering her files. I believe that work is the most important thing in life. That's what makes me a successful account executive. As your sister, I think I understand you better than most people, said Nina, nodding understandingly. We have the same hot temper and the same commitment to what we believe in. This is clearly awful. The why, why it's awful is because it's unnatural. Like, a sister would not describe the fact that she is the character's sister. And um, this happens a lot also with names, where someone will frequently use the other character's name too often. Hey, Ben, how are you doing? It's good to see you. It's fine. But, like, you don't need to add the word, the character's name in three more times. I've seen this happen a lot where, um, you know, the... The author wants to remind the character who's speaking. They don't want to do it with a dialogue tag, so they'll actually have the character say the other character's name. But if you think about it in real life, when you walk up to your friend, you may, might say their name in the beginning, possibly. Um, but you're not going to say it again. Very, it's highly unlikely. You might be able to get away with it twice in a, in a long conversation. Short conversations, like you don't need to repeat the character's name over and over again. Uh, it happens all the time. Um... Yeah, so, I, I, like I said, it's one, another one I've seen a lot. Don't do it. It's it's awful. Um, let's see. They talk about over-sexualizing your characters, obviously. Where they, they have more to them, obviously, than their physical assets. Um, sometimes that can be a turnoff for readers, is, is you know having your, your character be over-sexualized or, or thinking about those things too much. Like, yeah, we all have our sexual desires and such, but we shouldn't necessarily um, put, it shouldn't be the first thing on the page for the reader. It can often be a turnoff. 
um, even if you're writing a romantic novel or, a, you know, sort of a steamy romantic novel, we want to actually get to know the characters first. Talk about uh, style, perspective, and voice. All right, so narrative um, stance, narrative distance is, is an issue. A lot of times people will have um, too broad of a of an overlook on on the characters. We don't get into their heads enough, so it feels like we're being told the story, not we're not actually participating in the story. Um, it can also go wrong in a lot of other ways. So here is um, the I completely. We're in the novel as a work of auto hagiography. Like we shouldn't think that this is just the author telling this story. Like if you basically make up a character that's just essentially you with a few tweaks, um, we can usually see through that pretty easily. Um, also, like there's a lot of point of view issues that can pop up with style here when it comes to uh, narrative. Point of view is something that a lot of new writers will mess up, especially with head hopping, where they'll take a character and you're in their head for the beginning of the chapter, and then all of a sudden partway through a scene will switch to another character's point of view, um, just suddenly, where all of a sudden the other character knows what the first character is thinking, which shouldn't logically be possible if you're still in the first character's head. And this is something that happens, I've gotten into arguments with writers about this a lot. Um, and I guess in certain genres, you can get away with it a little bit more. I had one friend who's saying, oh yeah, I know in thrillers this happens all the time. And that may be true. You should definitely read your particular genre the most and understand the conventions that are used. For me personally, I don't think that you should ever switch a point of view character unless there is a chapter break, a scene break, at least some sort of line break in between so that I know that something is different. I know that I've switched something and I can get on board with the fact that I'm now in a different character's head. But just jumping to another character's head just so they can say something that they're thinking and then jumping right back to your initial character's head, it's confusing um, and it's it's a good way to get your reader lost very quickly um, doing this point of view head hopping. And having it, having it bounce around, it's, it's just amateurish. Read mo go check out some books that you like. Most of the time, you're not going to see that happen. So when in doubt, just stick to a single character's point of view until you get to an actual you know, break of some kind where you can switch it. Um, paradigm shift, where characters are of one mind. This is something that happened. I've seen it done too often, even in traditional books, unfortunately, where somehow some character knows something that the other character was just thinking, and it was never actually said out loud. It's silly. It's a, it's a silly mistake, but I've seen people do it because the, the author has put it out there to the reader. Oh, that this is the thing that this guy's thinking. And somehow they assume that all the other characters know, and it, it totally, you know, it doesn't work. You got to be careful that just because you know it and just because the reader doesn't know it doesn't mean your other characters know it. And they can't play off of it. They can't make a comment about it, something that was never actually illustrated. All right, tense shifts, of course, this can be a big issue is... Um, Going from past to present, you know, simple as that is, I've seen it done with, with newer writers where they suddenly will write a sentence that's in a, a present tense when they were previously just trucking right along in in um, third person past tense. And all of a sudden we get something in, in first person point of view present tense. And sometimes people will try to shift things around and say, okay, well, I'm going to do this with um, my internal monologue. And all of a sudden, I want to get into this character's head, and we're going to have some sort of interior monologue that's in present. Again, jarring for the reader. Like your main goal is to keep this, keep the reader invested in your story. Don't do any silly tricks with your style and your point of view. That's going to remind them that they're reading a book and not experiencing your story. So all of this stuff. When you want to get tricky, understand that you have a chance of losing your your reader. Um, so I know I've, I've hit about, uh, I think I've done, yeah, almost an hour at this point. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. There is more to this book. There are more issues. There are more problems that can be resolved. But yeah, if, if this has been helpful to you, if any of these tips sound like something that, um, you know, you might want to refresh yourself on, definitely check out this book. It's How to Write a Novel. I'm sorry, How Not to Write a Novel by Howard Middlemark and Sandra Newman. Like I said, it's funny. Like they do a really good job of their particular voice in this is um, 
is very humorous. So they write, they've had a lot of fun writing really terrible dialogue and really bad scenes in this. So you can tell that they had a good time with this book. And it makes it easy for you to laugh along as well. Like I said, it's there's a lot of comedy in this, some some really good good um, humorous language that they employ. It's it's quite clever, and it's a quick read. It's something that you don't necessarily have to read from front to back. You can dive into different sections, pick it up. It's a great coffee table book that you can have just sort of laying around. I've read it multiple times. It's one that's going to live on my bookshelf for for many many years. So check it out. Um, Thank you guys for, for listening and for, for comments. I saw James was watching. He says, great show, great advice. I appreciate that. Arthur was watching. Ronnie Roberts says, great way to start my day. Brooke Smith says, I love the breakdowns. Fantastic. I'm glad you guys have been enjoying these. So hopefully you got some good tips out of there. Um, I won't take up too much more of your time. I will be back again next week with another uh, interview episode. Something to look forward to there. And um, I've been really enjoying, of course, um, Lots of reading, lots of writing, and I hope you are are all doing uh, well yourselves. I would love to he- love to hear from you. Like I said, if you ever have comments about the show, feel free to email me, Nathan at NathanVanCoops.com. I would love to hear from you. All right, so long, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, please uh, share it with someone and let them know um, that you like it. And we are always looking for for new listeners, new readers. So um, if it's been if it's been helpful to you, share it with someone else. All right, so long, and we'll see you all next week.